This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. At Kavnis HR, we deliver HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States. Each year, it is estimated small business owners are losing $27 million because of HR, which comes out to an estimated $10,000 per small business employee. Also, small business owners are spending an estimated 25% of the time on HR. Time better spent taking care of employees, taking care of customers, and building their business. Kevin's HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. On this episode of the Jason Cavins Experience, I had a great time talking to Cynthia Delaria of Rayco Technologies. We talk about the importance of finding product market fit, of talking to people about her, your idea, and her work with the nonprofit Thunder Puppy Canine. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cavins Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cavins. Our guest today is Cynthia Delaria. Cynthia, are you going to be great today? Yes. Cynthia got in the world of entrepreneurship and coding at an early age. She started coding when she was eight years old and over the past decade has learned what great technology implementation looks like from some of the smartest people in the industry. Her first two companies were all about web design and development and finding ways to help companies come to the new era of promoting and doing business on the web. Cynthia, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm excited to be here. So Cynthia, what do you focus on right now? These, you know, not so normal times they say. <laughs> uh, it's a great question. So I really have two areas of focus. One is working with entrepreneurs who are just getting into technology. They have an idea for an app or a website or a, a piece of software or a SaaS product. And they're trying to figure out how do I turn that into a profitable business, um, preferably with a decent margin in it. Um, and so I work with them to do product market fit and idea validation and de-risking their idea as much as possible before they jump in. And the other areas, I work with women in technology on career advancement opportunities and how to put, put your best foot forward and navigate the bro culture um, and negotiate the world of tech to have the career that you really want and make the money you really want. So... So since you talk about the importance of people, like talking to people about your, your idea, because like I think so many entrepreneurs are like, oh, I have this idea of the app, I have this idea of the tech. And they talk to their parents, their spouse, best friends. <laughs> and then they like, you know, I won't say waste, but like we'll say they learn over a period of five years and three hundred thousand dollars that maybe they shouldn't have done this, right? Talk about the importance yeah. of talking to people about your idea. Yeah. So um, it's a really great point. You know, I, I've talked to a lot of people who are like, oh, my wife thought this was such a great idea. So I'm going for it. Or, you know, my mom thinks this is so good. The thing about product market fit is understanding three things what's the problem you're solving? Who are the people you're solving that problem for? And does the solution that you're proposing to their problem resonate with them? So are the, it, does it cause them to want to change their habits, spend money, ideally both, in order to solve the problem using your solution? And 
asking these questions, you have to go outside of the, you know, 20, 30 people who know you best and who are going to want you to be successful no matter what. And you have to actually get into the world of your, your ideal end user. Um, so yeah, I, I always tell the story um, about a guy who I, I've named him Doug. That's not his name. But I had, I had lunch with him. This is almost a year ago now. It was actually last August or September. And, you know, he wanted to find out about product market fit and, you know, what was the work that he needed to do. And he told me this story about how he had this idea for an app. He convinced his wife to put $250,000 mortgage on their house to get the money out to be able to develop it and do like the first round of marketing. And he was convinced that within a year, 18 months at the most, he was going to be a millionaire and it was going to be fine. Well, I was talking to him four and a half years later. Um, he had he had not made dollar one in the platform yet, um, and his wife divorced him. He lost you know the house and the divorce, half his retirement, and he was like, "Now I'm just looking at going back into corporate because I don't know where else to go." And he's like, "But if I could get product market fit, then I feel like I could make this work." And I was like, "It's I." I, I Yes, you should look to see if there's product market fit. The problem is product market fit isn't about taking a product and shoehorning it into the market. It's actually about asking the market what are the problems that they need solved and solving those problems. And you know, so for him it was like, are you willing to spend whatever money it takes to pivot your product to wherever the market is? And, you know, I, I don't know if he did or not. Um, but you know, uh, it, it's the thing that I'm trying to prevent. That's the thing that I. That story is a tragedy because it's entirely preventable, um, and so it, it hurts my heart. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, part of our fit is not easy to get right. So many things have to line up. Right, first it has to be build another product. People have to get other habits. Whether you use them might be good enough. Uh, it's it's not easy as people make it seem out to be. Yeah, and and it's not a one-time thing either. You know, a lot of times I see startups that are like, okay, we have product market fit, we know what our MVP direction is, and then they never do it again. And five years later, they're like, we started out so great, and now we don't understand what's happened. And it's like product market fit is something you're constantly. It's sort of like customer satisfaction. You have to constantly pay attention to it because markets change and needs shift, and technology changes, and so. You have to do it in the beginning in order to understand what do you go to market with and what's going to be your best, your your widest market for for revenue and for gaining traction. But then you have to keep doing it to understand what's the next most important problem that your customers have that you could be solving. How is the problem that you originally started started solving? How has it evolved? Are there new competitors in the marketplace? Because a big part of product market uh, fit research is competitive analysis, and when new new competitors come to the market, that changes things too. So this is something that you have to keep your eye on the ball. And it has to be part of like your ongoing business operations forever. <laughs> so, so you're saying you don't talk to five people and you're talking to no one else the rest of the time, right? You That's exactly right. In fact, like for a lot of my startups, I really encourage them to talk to a minimum of 50 ideal end users. I really like to see them talk to 100 to 150 before they get started. Because you learn so much. And, you, and really... Not only do you learn about your target market, you learn about what it takes to be the CEO or the founder, or the creator of a tech startup, which is somebody who's willing to, to, to have a large majority of your life be about your idea and nothing else. And you're always looking for opportunities to talk about it. 
And I've seen people who, who, you know, they go through the first like 15 or 20 and they just get bored and they're like, I don't care about this. And I was like, isn't it great you figured that out now? <laughs> Very good point. Very good point. <laughs> so as far as like the MVP, should that be going at the same time as part of market fit? Should you build MVP MVP first, then product market fit at the same time? How do you think you should do that? I like finding product market fit first. I think every, everything sort of starts from that lightning spark, which is the idea, which is, you know, that you were like, oh, this could be an app or this could be a website or whatever that is. Taking that idea and validating it in the market, understanding the the real problem that you're solving. So, so a friend of mine, Melinda, she makes this distinction between features and solving a problem. So you can think, "Ooh, this app would do all this cool stuff," but features on their own don't necessarily solve a problem. You have to go back to what is the problem we're solving, and what are the things that are required? What are the feature sets and the 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 functionality that's required to solve that problem in a whole holistic way that resonates with people. So I feel like you have the spark, you have the idea, you do all the product market fit research, competitive analysis, build your pro formas, understand all of the areas that are potential areas of risk. And then that will tell you what your MVP should be. And then you know what you need to be building. So as an example, I have so many clients. One I just got off the phone with a little while ago. When, when I first started talking with him and his partner about what they're building... In our very first meeting, I said, "You guys, you just described like half a million dollars worth of software." And I and he was like, "Yeah, we'd really love to get something out this year." And I was like, "You'd be lucky to get half a million dollars of software out by December." Well, over the course of the product market fit work that we've been doing, not only have we gotten him to a minimum viable product that'll cost less than sixty thousand dollars all in to get to market. But we've reduced that timeline so that the end of the year is very, very feasible. In fact, we're looking closer like September, October timeframe now. So product market fit is not just about making sure that you launch a product that will make money. It's about making sure that you don't spend any more money or time than you absolutely have to in order to get to market and be making money. <laughs> how often do, do oh, people surprise at the cost of tech? Like how, 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 Always. Isn't <laughs> that cheap, right? I mean, no, it's not an expensive. I, you know, are there are there companies that can get you know a basic app done for ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars? Sure, if it's really really simple, yeah, you can probably get that done. But the reality is, there's a lot more behind the scenes and in the background going on than what you may be aware of when you start out on this path and it just it takes time and it takes money because you want good people working on your stuff now that said i do know some companies apid is one of those here in town in denver they use offshore developers and they are phenomenal i mean i i don't think in in the years that i've known them i've never seen them uh blow a budget and maybe like twice have i seen them miss a deadline and it was literally like by a couple days so Finding a good team that's that knows what they're doing and that has a track record of success is also another way that you can keep costs down. But they're going to be that much better if you know exactly what you need them to build. Next, talk about this. So I think a lot of companies, even if they do like the, the product market fit MVP, they build a product and like no one knows about it. Like there's no branding. There's no nothing. <laughs> so like, here's my app. And they're like, 
who are you, right? And I talk about the parts yep. of like trying to like do all this thing all that at the same time. <laughs> well, it's sort so. Uh, I have worked with with uh, entrepreneurs who are like, I built my app, I put it in the app store, and it's just it's not selling. And I'm like, okay, well, just building an app and putting it in the app store is the equivalent of having a widget that you're going to sell through Amazon. Amazon throws it in a bin in one of their warehouses, and you're like crossing your fingers waiting for the money to come. Yeah. Apps are like anything else. There's over two and a half million apps on the Apple App Store. There's over three million apps in Google Play. That's a lot of noise to cut through. In order to do so, you have to have a marketing plan, a strategy, a social media strategy. You have to create a voice for your company telling people the problem you're solving for them. And this is one of the places where I feel like entrepreneurs focus on the wrong things in their marketing campaigns. People don't care about how awesome you are. They care about getting their problems solved. The companies that do really well and that cut through the noise, even if they have a lot of competitors, are the companies that are talking about the end user and their problem and the hell they're living in today. And then they say, and our product will get you to this heaven where you you will be able to XYZ and you'll never have to lay awake at night thinking about this again, whatever that is, right? Get in the world of your end user. Stop talking about how great you are and your you know, patented technology. And all. Nobody cares about that. They care about what are you doing for me to make my life easier to justify me giving you my money. So since the next talk about this, what I, what I call like a channel of... of uh, I got to make sure I wore this right. The channels of communicating with the developer, right? Because most people think like you give the developer, <laughs> developer, you know, build this for me, right? Like, as an example, I use, like, you know, if you, if you, if you tell a quote unquote a normal person, open the door, hey, Jason, go open the door. Develop, you gotta say, Jason, take one six inch step to the door. Take two, <laughs> like, it's all, it's, like, it's so detail driven, right? And I think a lot of people, yes. like, don't understand that. And how do you solve that communication gap? So, it's a really great question. Understanding how to talk to techies. Um, I, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've been a techie. I'm one of those people who has a natural ability to bridge tech to non-tech really, really well. Um, it's not easy because they think in terms of manageable chunks of code that I can fit together to create a larger picture, right? So... Really, in order to be effective at communicating, you have to be really clear about what it is you want. The more clear you can be, if you can draw things out, like low-fidelity wireframes for flows of how you envision things working, um, being really clear about all the edges, and then be open to them asking you a lot of questions. And it doesn't mean that they haven't got it. But I can tell you, I have one of my very, very favorite developers who's here in Denver. And one of the things that I love about him. His name's Grant. And one of the things I love about Grant is he has this uncanny ability to see every possible way something could go wrong. Like every possible way somebody could click something that's wrong or do something that's wrong or or try and sneak attack something, right? And so he's always asking questions that sound like he's missing the core, but he's not because he got the core piece of what you're talking about a long time ago. And now he's trying to make sure he's taking care of all the things that could happen that would thwart the original intention of what you're trying to do. So being really clear, really concise, having as much example as you possibly can, and then listening for 
what questions do they have that where they're going to help make it better and having a really good technical product manager or project manager who can kind of help you translate with with a tech team even better like whether that's someone on your team or if you're hiring a development firm somebody on their team is really good at that all of that will make your life so much easier Cynthia is there a difference between a software developer and a software engineer no they're the same thing <laughs> Okay. Um, like on average, how about how about this? A software developer on average, how many lines of code they've ever do in an hour? Oh, is that like what kind of metric is that measured by? You know, I, I I don't like to measure things by the number of lines of code. I actually believe that good software developers, especially in legacy software, are better at removing things that aren't necessary. And so we actually, um, I, I worked with a company that had a tech product and they were losing money on it. And I came in and sort of fixed the... They had a people problem. They had some efficiency problems. They didn't have a process for how they put out new software. And so we fixed all that. And in the course of fixing that, we went from over 250,000 lines of code down to about 60,000 lines of code, 142 database tables to 24 database tables. And in that process, we doubled the amount of functionality. So less code got more done more efficiently and more effectively. So to say that there's a, a number of lines of code that a developer should be able to do per hour, what is the what is the meaning behind that? It's sort of like I can write lines and lines and lines of code that mean nothing and do nothing at the end. I want to know that you've thought through it and that what you've produced is fast, efficient, scalable, and really easy, easy to maintain. That's what I care about. If that means that you know you produce 20 lines of code in a week, but they're amazing and they get exactly done what I need them to get done, that's what I'm going to measure you by every time. Synthesis, you always hear good code, bad code. Is there such thing as good, bad, <laughs> good code, bad code? What is that? What is that even? Um, yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna draw a hard line in the sand and say, yes, there is such a thing as bad code. Things like, uh, I kid you not, I've seen this stuff. If false equals true. And then a bunch of stuff inside of a of a of an if statement. It's like that's never going to get executed. Why is that in there? You know, sometimes people use this as a way of saying, you know, instead of commenting a piece of code out because I'm not sure what I'm going to need, I just do this. It's, there, we have source control for a reason. It's like if it's not needed or you're you're pretty sure it's not needed, get rid of it. You can always go back and look at what you deleted later in source control. So yeah, I do I do think there's a difference between good code and bad code. And again, I think good code is maintainable. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. You can tell what it does. So the average, you know, mid-level software developer coming in off the street who knows the language that you're working in should be able to look at a chunk of code and know what it's doing and what its purpose is. And that's really what good code looks like. So Cynthia, I believe you started coding at either eight or twelve years old, right? Yeah, I was eight. Yeah. Visual basic was my first language. So what what in your childhood influenced you to start coding at such a young age? Well, I love to read. Um, I love books. I can't get enough of books. And when I was a kid, we always would go to the library and you could check out like two or three books at a time. And I'm a very fast reader. Even even when I was little, I was a very fast reader. And so oftentimes I'd get through my books before we would get to go back to the library. Well, my mom was taking some classes in um, programming and networking at, at a community college near where we lived. And she just happened to be doing this visual basic class. And so I had nothing to read. And I'm looking at this book is sitting on her desk. 
desk and I was like, Hey, that looks interesting. And so I started reading it and, you know, it walks you, walked you through how to set up the program on the computer. And we did have a computer at that point. And so I just started typing the stuff in and it would do cool stuff. And by the end of the book, there's like animated 3D graphics that are kind of like flying around and like, you know, graphs and stuff like that, that I was able to create. And I just thought it was super cool. And so every time she would bring home a new coding book, I would just kind of like get in there and do the thing. And, you know, I learned COBOL that way. And, um, uh, Fortran. I did some some Fortran stuff that way, which was pretty fun. I mean, those languages aren't really used very much today, but they all have a basis in in the C ish world. Um, so as I started learning more about the internet and HTML and and languages for the internet, you know, all of that came in handy. But I, I just that that ability to put something into a computer that looks like math and looks like logic, which is how my brain works, and create something on the other side, that instant gratification of seeing it run and do something meaningful, it just was really... It, it, it spoke to me. It just felt like it clicked. you know. So, And I've, I've been doing it for th- over 30 years. Cynthia, so. <laughs> do you still do a lot of reading? Oh, I love to read. I, I have a bunch of nonfiction stuff, a bunch of business stuff that I read, and I I cannot get enough of like really good thriller books, uh, murder mysteries. Um, I, I love the Harry Potter series. I reread that one probably about once a year. Yeah, I love to read. How much of a challenge this for developers? I know developers like you know, of course, like they'll go to coding school, or whatever, or a college degree, and it'll be this hot, sexy code they use, <laughs> and then. To, you know, slight exaggeration, but then two days later, it's another hot, sexy code, right? Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, three days later or a month later, it's outdated, right? They had to go to yeah. school again. How, yeah. how, and I'm sure most companies don't like pay developers to keep up to date, right? How much yeah. the challenge for developers to like, keep up to date with everything, with everything else they're supposed to do? Yeah, I would say it, it, it can be really simple if, if depending on how you came into what you're doing. So for someone like me, um, and, a, and a lot of the developers that I work with, we came from a strategic principles background. So the, I, the concepts of object-oriented programming, those really aren't going to change. You know, we might discover new patterns. There might be frameworks or, or methodologies or new languages that apply those a little bit differently. But really, the thing is understanding syntax looks the same you know, very, very similar across different languages. So if you're good at understanding why you're doing something a particular way in a particular language, you can usually apply that same principle to a different language or a different framework. Um, and then understanding the principles of good programming. Is it, like I said, is it readable? Is it maintainable? Does it do what it's intended to do? Have I named my functions well? These are all things that transcend language. So there may, there's always going to be the hot new framework or the hot new language or whatever. However, if you have if you have the basic skills and the fundamentals right, you'll be able to navigate that. And it's not really super hard. Here's the thing that I tell most entrepreneurs: ninety nine point nine percent of entrepreneurs are not building something that needs to be leading edge technology. They're just not. They're solving problems for real people in real ways. That doesn't require fancy whatever ology, you know, sexy whatever. Like you don't need bitcoin to solve the problem of traveling with your pets, right? Like that's not <laughs> you you don't need um you, you don't but, need but blockchain. So many, but so many people think they do, don't they? 
Well, they think that they do. And so they spend a lot of extra time trying to conquer brand new, hot, sexy, leading edge technology rather than solving the problem with tried and true methods, right? I'm always directing people as much as you can use tried and true technology to get to your end goal. You will do way better. You'll save way more money and your product and your service will be much more attractive, not only to your end user, but to potential investors. You know, so I, I, I think there's a place for leading edge technology. And I think that's great that there are companies that are always out there like pushing that envelope. But for the majority of entrepreneurs, solve the problem your people need solved. And it probably doesn't involve something that's super high end or super bleeding edge. Santos, so there's a new developer out there who gets started starting. How do you recommend them picking what code to learn at first? Mm. Um, it depends on on what makes you the most excited. So I would say JavaScript is always good to learn and start with, you know, early books um, uh, that are escaping me right now. Um, uh, I'll post them in, in response to this on our Facebook page. But um, start start way back before ES6 and, and, and learn the history of the language because it will give you some insight into why closures look the way they do in JavaScript, which is a little bit different than other languages. And JavaScript is great because it's, it can be used on the front end. And it's, a, it's used a lot in the server right now too. Node.js, uh, the React frameworks, all of these are used using JavaScript on the server, which is a really interesting crossover that's pretty unique for the language. Um, if server-side stuff is more interesting to you, you know, you don't care so much about making stuff look pretty, but you like the, the logic and the process, PHP is a great place to start. There's a lot of really good core concepts that you can learn learning PHP that translate really well into other languages that you might want to get into. And then I would say, look at the industries that you want to be in. If you want to be in aerospace, you got to be a C guy. Like You got to, you got to be able to go back to C, the basics, the, the most core level of code, because you're building stuff that doesn't... You're building the server and the compiler and everything along with what you're doing. So you need to know all of that. So I would say the industry that you want to be in and the, the area of computer science or computer engineering or development that you want to do will dictate that as well. But PHP and, and JavaScript, you could never go wrong learning either or both of those. Cynthia, from what you're seeing here from your perspective, how long does it take someone, how long does, someone, does a coder have to uh, hone their craft, so to speak, to be a good developer? I would say if you're somebody who's really dedicated and you really love it, within a year or two, you can be proficient to where you can get a good job, you can you can contribute with what you're doing. Um, like anything, you have to do something for 10 years to really hit that level of mastery, right? We've all heard that. In order to become an expert at something, it really takes 10 years. That's because the amount of time you have to put in, the amount of commitment and the amount of engagement that it takes to stick with something that long indicates that you really love it and you were destined to become a master at it anyway. So does it take a long time to become a good coder? No, but it does take a level of dedication and a willingness to learn from people who come, who have come before you and to be willing to ask intelligent, meaningful questions to get that knowledge. And I, I think that's more important than anything else in, in the discovery of yourself as a developer. So Cynthia, you, you, um, I believe you sold your first company at 19 years old, right? Yes. So 
How do you get involved in entrepreneurship at such an early age? <laughs> By accident? Um, <laughs> no, I, I, you know, when I was when I was fifteen, I was working as a barista in a coffee shop near my house, and I, I'm I'm always somebody naturally. I'm someone who's looking for a more efficient way to do things. Um, process is really important to me. Um, Solving problems is really important to me. And the, the problem is when in working for someone else, especially as a teenage girl where your hormones are going crazy and you can't shut your mouth long enough to keep something from coming out of it that shouldn't. Um, what I found was after a couple of weeks of working at this coffee shop, I was really bad at it because I was constantly telling other people what they were doing wrong. And, oh my gosh, you shouldn't do that. And that person said they have a dairy allergy and that looked like milk you just put in there. And, you know, and, and I went to my boss and I said, I think I have to quit because I don't think I'm good at this. And she, she like got this relief on her face. And she said, that's so good because I thought I was going to have to fire you. So what I learned from that was one, I probably better find a way to make money some other way than the than the traditional ways. And two, what am I really good at that I could be good at and make money at at the same time? So I, I went I started going to the business owners in my church, people who own businesses in my church, and asking them, are you on the web? And a lot of them were like, no, I don't really see, you know, this is like early to mid nineties. And they're and like, you're, yeah, you're 15 at this time, right? Yeah, I'm 15. And, and they're like, I don't really see a reason. I was like, look, this is like the phone book of the future. Okay. You're in the phone book. Right. And they're like, well, yeah, of course. I'm like, that's what the web, that's what the web's going to be like. That's where people are going to go to figure out who's doing what and, and all that. So early sales. Right. And so I got enough traction just, just with people in my church that they started making referrals to other business owners that they knew or other people who had projects at their companies that they were working on. And I started doing larger projects, building message boards and forums. And I even did like a big uh, online catalog for a company that did um, books on tape that were read by stars and celebrities in LA. And it's kind of grew organically, right? Like there came a point where I was like, oh, I have this project that I just won and I realized I don't have the skills. I need to hire somebody who has those skills to help me complete the project, right? And so uh, I, I was in about my third year of business and I won a very, very sought after contract by a lot of my competitors. And the way I won this contract, because I was, all, I was, I think I was barely 18 at the time. I might not have even been 18 yet. And the guy who was responsible for this project, he came to me and he said, look, your, pr your price is really attractive. And he said, but you're really young. He said, I see that all these businesses that, that refer you and are, speak very highly of you, but I'm just concerned because you're so young. And he's like, so this is originally supposed to be a five-year contract. We're going to give you the first six months of the contract. And at six months, if you've done all the stuff, we can revisit you know, getting you the, the rest of the five years or, or we can make another agreement or whatever. It was three months into the contract. He came to me and said, you have blown away all of our expectations. Everybody that we've that we've talked to is absolutely right. You're great at what you do. We're so happy. We're going to give you the, the rest of the five years now. Well, two of my competitors were really pissed. They were like, they were like rooting for me to fail because they wanted this contract really badly, but they couldn't underbid me because they just had more overhead than I did at the time. So they both came to me and made me offers to buy out all of my contracts in order for me to transition that relationship to them. And so I ended up going through that whole negotiation and, and, you know, finally, you know, 
working with one of them to settle on a, on a price and and sell. Um, but yeah, it really is by accident. This was not something where I set out and said, "Oh, I'm going to build a consult build a consulting company that I'm going to sell within five years." That, that just wasn't. It was like, no, I just need. I'm a teenager and I need money. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to do whatever seems like the right thing to do, right? <laughs> And, and, and I know I read something on from you on LinkedIn, I think a video. Is this to the point where you wish you had a mentor that would so told you how to be, um, be ready for success? Yes, because uh, I grew up um, very poor. Um, my mom, God bless her, most of the time worked two and three jobs just to make ends meet. And um, you know, I'm very, very grateful because I grew up in a home with a lot of love and nothing else. <laughs> And if you had to pick, you know, money, time, or love, let's go with love for kids because that's the thing that they understand the best. Um, and so I just didn't know what to do with money. I didn't. I didn't have a good CPA to advise me about how to, you know, work the work the, the capital once it came out of the deal. I didn't have a good attorney to advise me to to watch out for my best interest on the tax side and also on the deal side. So I gave up a lot in the deal because I just didn't know better. And then here I am with all this money, and I'm like, it, for for a kid from a trailer park. In Western North Carolina, it was like, oh, I'll never need to make money again. I can spend whatever I want. And you'll be amazed at how fast you can blow through a million dollars, especially when you don't realize that there's actually taxes you have to pay on that. And then you get the tax bill and you're looking at your bank account going, oh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. <laughs> so yeah, that, that, was, that was the point at which I, I was really... Wishing that I that I knew more about money and and that sort of began my exploration into what is finance, what is personal finance, what is a budget. I mean, I knew all these concepts in a company because I had to learn it as I built my first one, but it never occurred to me that if you ran your life like a business, that would be a good thing. <laughs> I had never done a budget before; it was like brand new to me. So for for personally. <laughs> Cynthia, so having a knack for business, does, mm. does someone just naturally have a knack for business? Are they born with it? Something they learn over time? Or how does that work, you think? <laughs> It's a really great question. I think there are people who are definitely born with all of the natural um, inclinations and tendencies towards good principles in business. But I absolutely think that if it's something that you're drawn to, you can learn it. I mean, I teach new entrepreneurs who, you know, they have a nine to five job, they've always been in corporate or worked for someone else. And I see them, you know, struggling with the stuff that comes naturally to me. But once I work with them and teach them the concepts, they get it and it just ignites that natural desire to drive and that national that that natural ambition that they already have. So I think more importantly than than understanding the mechanics of entrepreneurship or running a business is that fire, that ambition, that desire to be an entrepreneur because it is not for everyone. It, it, it is it takes fire in the belly. It takes a willingness to fall down a lot, even when you do the, know the mechanics or or you feel like you have the answers. Um, and to keep getting back up and working towards that vision. Um, and and most of the time, uh, most entrepreneurs have the have the experience that people don't understand that in their lives. You know, they go, "Oh, you should go get a real job," or you know, you could be making so much more money if you were using your skills working for somebody else. 
an entrepreneur understands that they're giving up the short term for the long term and the vision. And, and that's really hard to stick to unless you have that fire. And so that's kind of what makes the difference between an entrepreneur and not. Um, yeah. Now, one thing a lot of entrepreneurs don't realize too, like once start off, they don't realize how many times they're going to hear the word no over and over and oh, over again. Oh, yes. That's, what you, that's going to be what you're going to hear until you actually have proof that you're right. <laughs> and you have to be willing to like hear no or hear not now or, or understand, you know, I've been in so many investor meetings where I'm watching entrepreneurs pitch and I'm like, this is a really great idea. And the guys in the room don't get it. Like they just, they aren't seeing it. And I have heard investors say things to people that sound like, hey, we're really interested in this. We'd like to know more when what they're actually saying is, we don't get it and there's no way we're giving you money. And so you have to, you have to learn to not only hear no for no, you have to learn how to hear maybe for what it really is. Yes, as a maybe. Like you get really, you have to like get really in tune with people and you start to find those people who get you and who want to want to support you on your path. And fostering those relationships and learning that not all relationships are like that. There are a lot of people that you're going to talk to. There's a lot of people that you're going to meet. There's a lot of people who are even going to sound like they're excited about what you're doing. They may not be your people and that's okay. Like Find your people and hone those relationships and, and, and especially if they're with like potential end users. Um, so yeah, no is something that you'll hear a lot a lot, a lot, right up until you're Zuckerberg. And then people will be like, oh, whatever you want to do, we'll follow it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely a lot of cohorts and venture funding and stuff like that. You know, like I think the big one is, you know, get more traction, right? It's exactly right. People are like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, like, oh, you have like, what do you want? Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of cohorts. Yes. What advice do you have for non tech founders? <laughs> Non-tech founders. So non-tech founders are my favorite people um, because I think it, it takes something to start a business that's a brick and mortar or a business that's a service-based industry. Um, because the old school... I'm putting old school in quotes. The old school ways of building a business are seem much harder than the ways of building a tech business. Um, and what I'll say to anyone who owns a business that is non-tech, if you have an idea for an app, a website, a piece of software, something that would solve a problem in your industry, pursue that. Like Go after that because it's a way to not only add higher margin profits into your own business, if you can solve that problem for other people in your industry your competitors who also have that problem. Now you're making money off of all the businesses in your industry. And you can even potentially shift or change your industry if you do it right. And there's huge opportunities all over service-based industries specifically for change and, and, and actual disruption of the way people have always done business or the way people have always interacted with particular business types. Um, so I, you know, I work primarily with non-tech entrepreneurs who are now trying to build a technology solution for something completely outside the technology space. And I love it. It's really fun. <laughs> so Cynthia, how do you deal with people who are not, not, might not be a good match for your company, right? Like, how do you go about, like I call firing your customers? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, it's really good. Um, there's a lot of talk right now about culture, uh, and that has that has a lot of 
different connotations for a lot of different people. For me, I feel like the best way to figure out who your ideal customers are, or the people you want to work with or not, is to know your personal culture. Like, What are the values that you have internally for yourself? And then what are the values and the expressions of those values in your company? And if you're being true to your values and someone isn't signing up with you or they're not buying from you, it's just an indication that they're not a good customer for you. And that's okay. Don't try and tweak yourself into a pretzel to fit for everyone. This also goes to understanding your niche. So a lot of times when I when I'm working with new entrepreneurs and you know, they're doing product market fit and they're talking to ideal customers. They're like, oh, well, but they're, everybody could use this. I mean, it could be useful for everyone. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I get that. But let's narrow it down. Let's find that group of people for whom you change their world. Because even though it looks like a smaller group initially, you're going to get more of that group and you're going to build that traction that you're looking for. And then you can expand into other audiences. But the chances of being the right person to solve the problem for those people, if you understand them really well, much higher. And you'll get so much more of that market share because people in that group will hear themselves in your messaging. They'll hear themselves in your marketing and your social media, in the way that you talk about your product, and they'll know instantly that it's for them. So it's really important to understand who you are as a company, who you are as a human, and who the people are, what are the traits and qualities of people you want to work with or you want to be your buyers? What are the traits and qualities you don't want? You know, I I personally love working with people who are self-aware and who take responsibility for their own success. I don't particularly work with people who blame others for why the world is the way the world is or why their life is the way the world is, right? Because I feel like the only control you have, the only control I have is my actions and what I choose to do or what I choose to say. Those are the types of people that I naturally attract to work with me because they are invested in their own success. They aren't looking for me to create it for them because I can't. I can help you get there and I know all the paths to go down and all the ones where there are wolves at the end of that one don't go down there. But ultimately, you have to be responsible for your success. It's all about you. So... That's how I look for those traits. And understanding what you want and what you don't is really important to to attracting the right kind of people into being your customers, being your clients, being your buyers. You make a good point. I'm getting to say it wrong, but if somewhere it says, it's better to have 10 people love your product than to have 1,000 people just like it. Isn't that correct? That's exactly right. It's exactly right. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, because those 10 people are going to be more loyal. They're going to they're going to become ambassadors for your brand. They're going to always want to know what you're doing. They're and that speaks more highly to the other 1000 who like it and encourages them to buy than anything you can say. For sure. So, since they change the subject a little bit, I believe you do some volunteer work at an organization called I think it's K9 Thunder Puppy. Yeah, Thunder Puppy Canine Rehabilitation and Rehoming. So this is a husky rescue located um, in Coal Creek Canyon, uh, just outside of Golden, Colorado. And um, I have a passion for snow dogs. I actually have three huskies myself. This is my second set. Uh, my first pair um, 
passed away a couple of years ago. And so I'm, I'm on to the second set now. Um, and uh, Anne McDonald, who runs the rescue, uh, has this knack for understanding the unique traits of snow dogs. Um, very stubborn. They, they, they are... Um, <laughs> They're kind of like me. They're really stubborn, really sarcastic. If a dog can be sarcastic, I've seen mine do it all the time where you can just feel they like just tricked you into something and they just think it's the funniest thing ever to watch you like, what just happened? (laughs) Um, And so when these animals are, you know, purchased by people, uh, there's a not... Huskies aren't good for everybody. <laughs> That's what I want to say. You have to have a pretty particular personality type to be able to match wits with a husky and love them through all of it. And so um, a lot of these dogs end up in shelters. Um, there was a time when uh, one of the shelters here in town basically put all huskies on their kill list, uh, their euthanasia list, just because they are very, very difficult to adopt. Um, and so we have a personal mission to rescue the worst of the breed, um, rehabilitate them. We have a permanent pack on site that teaches dogs how to be dogs. And once we have rehabilitated them, working on finding the exact right person to be their forever home. In the past uh, almost 13 years, we've, we've rescued just over 150 dogs. Um, so we average between 10 and 20 a year, depending on the year. Um, and it's a, it's a mission that's very, very close to my heart. So, <laughs> yeah, I would have never imagine a thought that Siberians would be difficult to, to adopt. I thought they would, I would have thought it would be one of the easier ones. To be. Oh, they're easy I to adopt. They just bounce back a lot because okay. the, the, the traits of the breed, most people don't, they see the blue eyes and they see the really pretty markings and they think, Ooh, that's a beautiful dog. I'd love to have that without understanding all the personality traits. They're very stubborn. They're very sarcastic. They, they, you have have to build a relationship with a husky. You can't train a husky the way that you would train any other dog. I mean, it's important to have a relationship with a dog no matter what kind of training you're doing, but a lot of dogs want to please you more than they care about anything else. And so they're easier to train. Huskies don't care about pleasing you. They care about doing the things that they want to do. And you have to build a relationship of respect with them. And it just takes a lot of work. And so a lot of Huskies bounce back to shelters or end up strays more, I would say more than a lot of other breed of dog. Cynthia, can you talk about your own podcast? Yeah. So um, I have a podcast called Incubate This. And we it is designed for entrepreneurs who are entering tech for the very first time. Um, I am also the startup therapist. So I do like mini podcast releases that are like 2 minutes or less. And I do those in video format. Um, and those are really like things that my clients are facing today or this week or this month that I think could benefit everyone. Um, and uh, yeah, it's called Incubate This. Well, Cynthia, you've talked about your own company a little bit. Uh, can you go into more detail, like how the company got started, your vision for the company, and anything else you want to highlight? Yeah, totally. So we've been doing it uh, under the name of Rika Technologies for about three and a half years. Um, I, I had this crazy idea, and I had I've been working with entrepreneurs and founders and companies building new products and services for f- almost fifteen years now, um, but. 
in the last five years, I had this idea where I was like, what if I built myself a technology hedge fund? And how I did it was I, in, I invested my time and my resources in brand new ideas, got them to market in exchange for a portion of equity, and did that a bunch. And all the winners would make my hedge fund really successful. Through the course, so so when we originally started Rika, that's what we did. We were an incubator, and we exchanged equity for our time and our our knowledge and our money to help you get to market. What we found was some companies were really successful working with us. Some were eh, mediocre, and some failed miserably. And I scratched my head, and I'm like, why? Why? Like, what's the what's the thing that I'm missing? And as I started comparing all my clients to each other and then to other startups that were successful or not in the general general population, I realized that the product market fit piece was really important. And we always assumed that everybody did that before they went into development mode. That was a really bad assumption because people didn't know that they should be doing that. They just thought, oh, I have this idea. I need to go find a developer and get it built. So that was the first thing. The other thing was understanding like we talked about earlier, the traits of a successful entrepreneur. A lot of people think, you know, they they build their thing, they put it in the app store, and then they just sit back and like stuff happens, right? And it takes so much more than that. And so over the years, we developed not only a program to help people through validating their idea and the product market fit process, but also for understanding the personality traits that we're looking for and the the habits that these people naturally display that makes them more likely to be successful. And so now we use our... Um, we have an 8-week program. It's an online course that's delivered in a group format where we do product market fit and validation of your idea. And through that process, we identify people who we think would be a really good fit. And we will invite a couple people a year into the incubator and offer them you know, in exchange for equity in their company, our development services or our business services, whatever it is that they need. So yeah. So Cynthia, from your what you've seen so far, and a two-part question, part one, what characteristics do you see successful entrepreneurs have? And part two, what characteristics... Characteristics you see unsuccessful entrepreneurs have. So they're kind of like front of the hand, back of the hand. Successful entrepreneurs, like I said, they're driven, they're ambitious, they understand their vision and why they're doing what they're doing, and they never give up on it. Um, the other side of that, people who are not successful, they hear no enough times and they start to believe the no. Um, a successful entrepreneur never believes the no. They hear, they're willing to hear a no for opportunities to pivot or opportunities where they could do something better, but they never hear a no as you can't do this. They always believe in themselves and the idea more than they believe in what people, the feedback that they're getting from people who are their critics. And conversely, people who give up or who don't make great entrepreneurs are people who generally tend to listen to the criticism from other people more than they believe in themselves. And Cynthia, what's your vision for coming? Like, do you see like having incubators in all the major cities in the United States, or what's your plan <laughs> on that? Um, my my vision is actually that we eliminate entirely the story of Doug. You know, nobody ever has to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of their lives pursuing something that's never going to work. You pay a high um, price. Yeah. It, it, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to cost a lot, and it doesn't have to take a lot of time. And 
I I would love it if in the next 10 years we never heard that story ever again and we changed that statistic. That that would be my dream because then I can go find something else to do. <laughs> Cynthia, how's how's COVID-19 affected you and your business? Um, it's done some interesting things. So I actually love what I do in a recession or in a downtime because people invent more things when they're faced with the loss of a job or a change in their circumstance. Um, And generally, the things that people invent or create or the businesses that they come up with, the ideas that they have when they're facing a recession, tend to be more recession-proof businesses. So... The the three months are you know where everybody was locked down and things were like you know what the heck is happening tomorrow kind of world was tough for me the same way it was tough for everyone it's like how do you how do you continue to sell when people are so concerned about you know losing their job and their livelihoods are changing and and everything's really impacted but I was always excited because I know right on the other side of that is where people's creativity and their innovation and their invention comes in. And that's when my phone starts ringing off the hook because now people are not only more aware of how important it is to grab their destiny and own their future, but they also realize that they don't know what they're doing and they want to do it the right way and waste as little time and money as they humanly can to get to where they want to go, which is exactly what I do. So it's 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 been a challenge and stressful, certainly for me, the way that it has for everyone. And I have been really excited because I'm starting now to see that kind of influx of people's creativity. And that's what really gets me, gets me excited. So (laughs) for me, I know there's a lot of bad stuff going on. It's it's not, it is bad. I'm going to be wrong, but it's it's a lot of opportunity out there too. Right. I think like the last very session, like Instagram started, Airbnb started, we started a lot of Stripe. Yeah. Yep, Stripe started in 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 the last recession. Yep. So make sure to see what kind of great companies that we're talking about six, seven years from now that started from this. Yeah. And another thing too, like a lot of people are like, I can be an entrepreneur, I need security. People find out how secure the job really is right now, aren't they? Like That's exactly right. They're like Oh, you know, they've used the excuse for so many years. Yeah, but I have my secure full time nine to five that pays me really well. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, that can go away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Cynthia, talk some about your um, wanting to be a rock star in your singing career. Uh, <laughs> my always almost singing career. Um, yeah. So I, I've been singing in one form or another since I was about four years old. My mom taught me how to, how to listen for and sing harmonies when I was like seven or eight. Um, always was in choir. Uh, I was a cheerleader and a dancer for like 20 years. Um, love being on stage. I absolutely love it. I've always been in a band in some format or another. Um, in 2007 and 2008, I actually, um, put the most concerted effort towards building a career in music. I put out an EP, five original songs. Um, I think you can still download it on Amazon if I'm, if I'm correct. And I think iTunes too. Um, and uh, bought like 20,000 copies of the CD and just started doing shows and selling CDs and doing promotional stuff. And um, if I had been more aware at the time, I would have actually gone to Canada because I sold like 75% of everything I sold went, was in Canada. If I knew then what I know now, I would have booked like a few gigs in Canada around the major areas and seen if I could build myself a career there because they they loved it up there. Um, I just didn't know then what I know now. 
And and it never occurred to me to apply all my business knowledge to the music business. <laughs> and, and what kind of genre do you sing? Um, I love pop rock. So anything that sort of does that crossover between like heavy rock and pop music. So like um, Evanescence is one that sort of does that crossover where they use like real gnarly heavy guitars, but she's got this like beautiful voice. That's the kind of stuff that I love doing. Um, so yeah. And then, and then I just love a simple guitar or a simple piano with a voice. I love that kind of very simple, like scaled back, unplugged sort of style music as well. So, so. when's the last time you've been in front of a crowd and, and sung? So um, let's see. I, I was in an 80s band last year and we did a bunch of gigs all over Denver. I'm pretty sure the last gig that we played was at... Oh, what's the name of the bar downtown? Herbs. Herbs downtown Denver. Um, and it was in like January or February. We played there for New Year's Eve and then we did like a couple more gigs and then COVID kind of hit. And so we haven't really done anything since then. But yeah. <laughs> so you have your own business. You yeah. rescue Siberians. Yeah. You eat all the time and you're in a band. Like, yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you ever sleep? Like, <laughs> uh, no, not really. <laughs> I'll sleep when I'm dead, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I, I try, I try and be a well-balanced, a well-rounded human. Um, that's not always easy. Um, but I think, I think that balance and having understanding that there's more than one side of yourself, you know, you're not just a person who works or you're not just a mom or you're not just a dog mom. In my case, you're not just in a band, you know, you're, you're, you are the sum of all of it. And so recognizing that and, and being able to fit in your priorities and prioritize the things that are actually important in your life. I think it's really important. And anybody who works with me or works for me, I am always trying to teach them how important work-life balance is because that's where your creativity comes from. And that's, you know, you can't walk into the office and be productive on a Monday if you're not refreshed and you didn't spend your weekend doing something that makes you really happy. Um, so I just think balance is really important, you know? I think a lot of things, one thing a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong is like they don't listen to the body, right? Like, I mean, there's one thing to push through it and you got to grind and stuff. But if your body said, hey, I'm going to shut down, you got to listen to it, right? And a lot of people like, I'm I'm working 800 hour weeks, you know, I'm grinding, I'm doing this. You have to listen to yourself once in a while and take a break. Yeah, totally. There is a time when you have to power through, but those should be very, very, very rare. Generally, if you're getting a signal that you're tired or you're having a hard time focusing or whatever, take a break, man. If you got to go back to a client and change change a commitment or change a deadline or apologize or something, that is a far easier problem to correct than banging your head against a brick wall that you're never going to get through. Heads and brick walls don't belong next to each other, you know. So listen, you're, you're exactly. Exactly right. Listen to your body. Listen to your intuition. Listen to what you're being called to do. Because I promise, if you do, when you come back, you will be that much more productive at whatever it was you were trying to do before. Inevitably, that's what happens. And sometimes all you need is like a one-hour break, like take out two-hour break and just go chill out somewhere. Sometimes that's all you need is like a couple hours off. 
Totally. I mean, there's plenty of times where I'm sitting here like, ah, and I'm like, oh, I'm doing that banging my head against the brick wall thing. I'm going to go grab a dog and go for a walk. I'm going to get something to eat or grab a cup of coffee. And I come back and I'm like, I totally missed it. I'm missing, I'm missing a semicolon. How did I miss that? Like, that's so stupid <laughs> because you can't focus if you're, if you're all over the place, you know? So, so here's another question for you, right? So entrepreneurs, you know, we're like, you know, doing marketing, sales, development, on and on and on and on. So you personally, how do you attack that? How do you focus? Like you have a calendar, you just, you, you just follow, do you wing it? Like how do you keep, how do you prioritize and focus and, you know, all this kind of stuff? This is how I literally have a paper calendar. Okay. You guys, you see all the sticky notes you can see on the video there. I, I'm a tactile person. So I take notes with a pen and paper when I'm in a meeting. Um, I write things in my paper calendar with a pencil so I can erase them or move things around or whatever. Um, I have sticky notes all over my office that are reminders for various things. Um, It's just kind of how my brain works. And if I don't write it down, then it's swirling around in there trying to make sure that I don't forget. So writing it down just means that it doesn't have to swirl and my brain is free to focus on the thing that I'm focused on. So I... More than what do I do, I think it's important to understand yourself and how you are productive and how you focus and what are the things that distract you and what are the what are the processes or infrastructure you can put in place in your life to manage for the things that typically distract you. And for me, it's the thoughts rolling around in my head that I can't seem to stop thinking about. And if I write them down, then I can stop thinking about them and come back to them later. <laughs> yeah, I have the same problem. Too many thoughts in my head and bounce them back and forth. Yeah. So Cynthia, I understand you have something for our listeners today. I do. So uh, at the end of the day today on rikatech.com slash Kavnis, there will be an offer where you can book a one hour free consultation with me. Um, if you own a startup and you're struggling with something, bring the challenges that you're dealing with and we can work through those and come up with some solutions. If you're somebody who's been thinking about an idea and you just want to bounce it off me, I'll make myself available, give you a free hour of my time to just let's chat and dig in and see how I can can help. So that's rikatech.com slash Kavness. And Cynthia, can you share your social media for yourself and your company so people will reach out to you? Yeah, totally. So um, you can always get us on rikatech.com and all of our social media is linked from there. We're on LinkedIn, uh, Cynthia Delaria and Rikatech. We're on Facebook, Cynthia Delaria and Rikatech. Um, we're also on Twitter. Uh, we're just getting Instagram set up because that's an area that uh, some of our newer, younger entrepreneurs are in now. And so we're, we're getting that thing whole spun, spun up. So we're there, Cynthia Delaria and Rikatech. Um, and uh, then obviously, you know, in iTunes, you can find Incubate This, which is our podcast. Um, and again, all that stuff, the blog and everything is linked to from our website as well. So, And for Alyssa, we have the links to her gift and her social media on the show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cabinshtlblog.com. And be sure to share this episode with your friends and network. Cynthia, we're coming in with a talk. Can you give us advice or wisdom on anything you want to talk about? Know thyself. Listen to your heart. Listen to your intuition. Trust that if you're if you are called to do a thing or something resonates with you, trust that. There's a reason why we're given visions and there's a reason why we're given dreams and goals. Trust that and don't be afraid to do something new or different to go after something that you really want. Because like I said earlier, you own your future. You own 
every dream that you have, it's up to you whether you make it come true or not. And especially in this country, we're so incredibly lucky that we have the freedom to pursue whatever we want. That's the pursuit of happiness. So find your happy and go pursue it. And don't ever stop. Don't ever let anyone else tell you you can't because I'm telling you, you can. Cynthia, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome so much. Thank you so much, Jason. I enjoyed this so, so, so very much. And to our listeners, thanks for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know, pump it up.